Good morning, everyone. I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here. Thank you for saying good morning back. That was very kind of you. Um, oh, it, I was like, no, it's not my birthday. Did someone just ask me if it's my birthday? No, it's, it's Justina's birthday. It's not your birthday. Okay. Everyone around you is nodding their head and saying it's your birthday. And you're saying it's not your birthday. It's literally. Okay. So it's not your birthday. It's almost your birthday. Okay. Okay. This is good. Specificity is important when it comes to birthdays. So, I think to be really honest, um, I'm a little nervous this morning. I haven't done this in four months. And I can honestly tell you that after the past four months and the time that you as a church have allotted for me, which I'm going to talk a little bit about, this is, I feel like I've never stood in this space and taught the way that I'm about to. This is very new for me. So, I'm excited and nervous. Um, many of you know that about three months ago, Pastor Shaq and I, um, we stood up here, and Mitch Young and Amanda Wagner, who were parts uh, members of Garden City's Servants Council, that's our governing body, talked through just that Pastor Shaq and I have been walking through some different and difficult seasons, that we needed to take a step back in our roles. Pastor Shaq kind of moved back and, and kept, kept working, stayed part-time. You saw him teach and he led. Um, I took the better part of three months completely off. And in the course of those three months, um, had counseling twice a month. Each time was two hours. Met with a spiritual director, a pastor who pastors a church in the South Hills twice a month. And started to process things that I've never processed before in my life traumas from my childhood, and particularly difficult trauma from when I was 13, things that I've never talked about before. Legitimately 14 years of marriage, a year of dating Julia, 15 years of relationship, and these are things I'd never talked with her about. And last year, I shared with you that I spent probably the first half of last year completely masking all of it. Just doing the thing where you say, like, I can get myself through. I'm going to pull myself through. All of this is going to work itself out. And then eventually reaching a point where the thoughts were so dark and so scary that I went to Julia. And I shared with Julia the things that I was processing and, and working through and thinking. Um, a little aside here. If you are in a relationship, or you want a relationship, you need a person who creates safe space for you. It is potentially the greatest gift that Julia has given to me in 14 years, that I could go to her and honestly share with her some of the darkest things I've ever worked through, and not hope, but know I was going to be met by grace met with someone who would look at me and cry with me and weep with me and then walk with me 
through all of it. You created the space for that to happen. And I, I think to just be really transparent, there were points in this, and I'm sure, like, we've, I imagine, in varying degrees, in varying ways, every one of us have had these moments of deep darkness, of just pain. And it's usually in those places, right? It, I guess it was for me. I'll say that. For me, it became a space where all of the promises of God that I'd been taught came up short. Years ago, um, I got COVID really bad when the pandemic was just starting. I spent three days in the hospital. If you know me, I'm a very analytical person. And I was in the hospital on oxygen and legitimately thinking to myself, well, statistically, I should be okay. And then eventually reaching a point where I'm like, these statistics are not comforting at all. I currently have oxygen. I'm not sure what's happening to me. This felt like a similar moment where it was like I had all of these promises memorized, but they weren't working. Couldn't just say to myself, well, I mean, I know God will never leave me or forsake me. I know he'll never abandon me. But it sure feels like he does. It sure feels like he has. There were moments in the midst of these three months where, like, I just wasn't sure if he was there. And it started me towards what, what we talked about last week. Um, Julia stepped in last week because I was sick with COVID, and she delivered the sermon that I had written. Quick joke, real quick. Um, last week we met at Legacy International. Pastor Michael Day there has very graciously hosted us the past two weeks. And Pastor Day texted me after Julia got done teaching, and he said, your wife is anointed, she's an incredible communicator. And I wrote back and said, it's easy to be anointed when you're preaching your husband's sermon. <laughs> but also she did pretty good. But last week, this week, and then next week, the conversations that we are having are really kind of born out of those places where I just was not experiencing God. Having some of these moments of just wondering, where is he and where does he meet us? How does he handle grief? How does he handle darkness and pain? It started almost this quest to like find, like I need a story where Jesus shows up in someone's life in pain. And that's where we had last week's story where Jesus shows up in Mary and Martha's life as their brother Lazarus has died. And Jesus shows up knowing, he's already told his disciples, I'm gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus already knows that Lazarus is gonna be resurrected and yet Jesus still weeps with them. He still sees their very real pain and grief. And he still weeps with them even though he knows he's about to resurrect their brother. And noticing that story about the way that Jesus wept started me to process through, like there's other places where I remember reading that Jesus has also wept. I wanna to try to pay particular attention to those. 
This week's going to be the second of those conversations. We're going to work through a story that's found in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and he looks over the city and Luke tells us that he weeps. And then next week, we're going to spend some time in a passage in Hebrews, a passage that is really well known because it's this place where the author of Hebrews describes Jesus as our high priest, someone who is familiar with all of our struggles as people. And then it talks about the way that he prays and he weeps while he's praying. So that's going to be next week. But this week, Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. I don't know the way that you think about God. There might be some part of me because I grew up in a Catholic church, like just feeling guilty for what I do, that seems to come naturally for me. But there's also this sense for me, right, where it's very easy to conceive of God as being angry. It's very easy for me to conceive of God, despite the fact that, like, I know the language, you know the language, that God is love, that that is, Jesus is the personification of God as love, that for God so loved the world, right? We, we know the language, and yet it's also really easy for me to imagine God as being angry. I mean, there are pockets of Christians, right, who talk about faith this way, pockets of Christians that talk about cultural issues as though God is ready to punish those people, joyful, gleeful, almost, in his anticipation of punishing those people for the things that they've done or the way that they live. It's easy for us, I think, to think of God in this way. And I think sometimes, even though we know the language that God is love, we also maybe carry this doubt, this worry, this fear. Is he an angry God? Is his orientation towards our mistakes, our sins? Is it anger? where the thing that he most wants to do is punish us for our wrongdoing. It got me thinking about a story that um, I remember reading for the first time um, in high school. It was American literature. I remember thinking it was a story only to discover that it was a Puritan sermon. So like what I mean, I knew it was like Puritan. I knew it was from that time, but I thought it was a story. Turns out it was a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. Um, and like reading the thing and thinking, this is a really bad story. It's not supposed to be a story. It's supposed to be a sermon. And it's, you might be familiar with it, right? It's a, um, sinners in the angry hands of God. Jonathan Edwards spends a lot of time characterizing God as angry. And I had decided like as part of this time together that I would like to talk about that a little bit. And then I thought... Well, one of my closest friends, Dr. Derek Long, is literally the head of the English department at Perry High School. He'd probably be better suited to talk about this with you than me. So I asked him to do it, and he put together this video. So we're going to get a three-minute introduction to Sinners at the Hands of an Angry God. Here at Perry Traditional Academy, which is just up the road. Uh, Pastor Dennis asked me to share some of my literary insights into one of the more famous pieces of American literature, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Angry Hands of God. So first off, anytime I teach literature, I feel it's really important to talk about the social context, uh, the author, the author's background, just so that all of my students have this full picture 
of the text that we're reading. So I'm going to give you some background on Edwards. I'm going to summarize the text and then look at some of the defining features of this sermon. So he lived from 1703 to 1758, and he was the only son to his parents who had 11 children. So he had 10 sisters. We'll just let that be what it is. He was also super smart. He enrolled at Yale College at 13. He graduated in four years, and he was the valedictorian. So this sermon is seen as a major contributor to the Great Awakening, which was a religious revival that was sweeping across the American colonies in the 18th century. So now with that being said, this is a sermon and not a story. He was invited to this church in Massachusetts because this congregation was getting kind of wild and out of control. And they needed Edwards to give them a shot of uh, good old school Puritan preaching. From what I read, it took him six hours to deliver this sermon. Uh, the whole time, he stared at a rope in the back of the church, completely even-tempered. Now, occasionally he would stop and pause and have to wait for the weeping and wailing and the historical cries of the congregants to calm down, but he maintained that even keel throughout. The sermon was delivered by Edwards in 1741, uh, in which he warns dangers of eternal damnation for those who do not repent and turn to God right away. Edwards bases his sermon on the verse in Deuteronomy 32, their foot shall slide in due time. Edwards is referring to the Israelites and how they were once God's chosen people, but because they couldn't uphold the Ten Commandments, now they were all uh, damned to hell. Edwards uses vivid imagery and language to convey the terror of being in the hands of an angry God who is ready to cast the sinners into the eternal flames of hell at the flick of a wrist. He argues that human beings are in a state of constant danger and must turn to God for salvation. At one point, Edwards even switches the they in the sermon to you so that he is saying that this congregation is just as bad as the Israelites. He uses all kinds of imagery like worms and spiders and even hungry lions to refer to the power that God has. And the only reason we aren't burning in the pits of hell is because God hasn't made time to do it. Edwards ends his sermon by telling them about this amazing opportunity to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. He says that they should run forward to purify their hearts and wash away their sins. And he ends by saying, don't miss this opportunity or you will curse this day and the day you were born. So all this to say that in the six-hour sermon, Edwards cast this view of a menacing, hateful, vengeful God who could drop us into hell whenever he feels like it. He uses crazy imagery and metaphor to create such an intense sense of fear that the congregation will do anything to escape it. Hope that sets you up well, Dennis. Thanks. So I'd like to thank Katie for making that video look nice. I sent the text message to Derek asking him to do this. I said, I trust you with the content. I don't trust you with the filming. So take this for a moment, right? This idea, this image of an angry God. That it's God's anger that's going to, like, compel obedience. That we're going to respond to the gospel because we're fearful of just how angry he is. And just how ready he is to cast us into these eternal flames. Derek, when he used this line, he said that God, like, it's any moment. The only reason that 
Jonathan Edwards said people had not yet been damned to hell was because God just hadn't gotten around to it yet. He hadn't made time for it yet. This isn't the picture of Jesus. We're going to look at two stories in the Gospel of Luke that are really going to maybe challenge and reshape this idea. We're going to see a God who weeps. We're going to see a God whose leading emotion appears to be grief instead of anger. Julia mentioned this last week. When we want to know who God is, when we want to know what his character is, when we want to understand the way that he's going to act or orient himself towards the world, the most reliable place for us to look is Jesus. If we want to know the heart and character of God, an invisible God, we look to a physical God, Jesus. In Luke 19, verse 28, the story that we're going to be walking through this morning, it starts in verse 28, reads, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, At the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, The Lord needs it. It's a story that we're probably familiar with. We oftentimes walk through this story around Easter. It's the triumphal entry. It's the beginning of Jesus' final week of ministry and life. He's arriving in Jerusalem as a king. He's arriving on a donkey, which is a symbol of peace. He's arriving into his own city to rescue his own people as a king of peace. And we're told that the people receive him by shouting things like, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, and peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But then in verse 41, Luke says this, as he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Luke tells us that Jesus looked over the city and wept. It's a word that implies deep and audible sorrow. The closest parallel is it's the type of weeping you would expect a parent to exhibit after the death of their child. It's a guttural type of weeping. It's full body. It's ugly crying. It's a moment where we can literally picture Jesus with snot coming out of his nose. He is weeping and feeling very deeply the sin of the people of Jerusalem. In verse 42, Luke tells us that Jesus goes on. After weeping, Jesus speaks these words. He says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from you. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem and begin a week of ministry where he'll turn over tables in the temple, have his authority challenged, teach about the kingdom, prophecy judgment against the Jewish establishment, he'll be betrayed, 
eat a final meal with his disciples. He'll pray. He'll be disowned. He'll be arrested. He'll be put on trial. He'll be wrongly convicted. He'll be mocked. He'll be stripped naked. And then he'll be murdered. And yet here on the hilltop outside Jerusalem, Jesus' heart is broken for the people who in a week's time will kill him. Luke tells us that the people of Jerusalem want peace. It's the word shalom. They want security and prosperity and wholeness and welfare and flourishing, but because their hearts are hard, they've set themselves against Jesus. Instead, as a people, they've embraced the social and political ideology of a group of people known as the Zealots. If you're curious what the zealots might be comparable to today, think of people willing to storm a capital. In this moment, atop a hill, all of this comes into view for Jesus. He sees the holy city, his city. He sees the people who fill it, his people. And he knows the kind of peace that they actually want, the peace that they believe these political structures might be able to deliver to them can only be delivered through him, that he is the only one who can bring the peace that they want. And he knows that their hearts are so hard that they're going to reject him as their Messiah. And how does Jesus respond as he sees all of this and feels all of this and recognizes the depth of the hard-heartedness of the people in the city? He weeps. He grieves. He laments. There's no indication here that Jesus is ready at the drop of a hat to flick these people into eternal damnation. Jesus sees his people's hard hearts. He knows the depth of their rebellion. He understands they've turned away from God, and he knows that it's going to lead to their destruction, that they are stuck in sin, about to reject their Messiah and kill their God, and Jesus' response is not anger. Jesus is the full representation of an invisible God. If we want to know God's heart and character, we look to Jesus. And what we see in Luke's gospel is a God who's leading emotion towards our hard-heartedness and sin is deep grief. We see a God who, even though we've rejected him, even though we've turned our backs on him, even though we won't repent, still comes for us. He still dies for us. Take that in for a moment. Just rest in that. No matter the depth of our sin or rebellion, no matter the extent to which we've rejected Jesus, He still moves towards us. He still comes for us. He still dies for us so that we can be forgiven, healed, and made whole. 
We are not haunted by an angry God. We are pursued by a God who loves us desperately. If we move ahead four chapters in Luke's gospel, we come to the very end of Jesus' final week. He's been put on trial, he's been condemned, and now he's hanging on a cross alongside two criminals. He's been abandoned, he's been tortured, he's been mocked, he's been stripped naked. And in chapter 23, verse 34, we hear Jesus pray for the people who are killing him. In verse 34, Luke records Jesus as saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He prays for the forgiveness of the people responsible for killing him. He prays that God will not hold them responsible for their actions. It's in this moment that we see that Jesus is dying for this sin too. To be clear, Jesus isn't calling their actions good. He isn't saying that it's okay. If the people Jesus is praying for never realize what they've done, if they never repent, there will be judgment. But while Jesus is not excusing their actions, he is still giving up his own life so that they will have a pathway to God. He's offering forgiveness to people who commit great sin. He's making a way where there is no way for people far from God to come home. Jesus prays for his enemies. He doesn't curse or condemn his killers. He doesn't respond with anger. He doesn't threaten to dangle them above the fiery pit of hell. Just as Jesus weeps over our sin, he prays for us to be forgiven. Church, we are not haunted by an angry God. We're pursued by a God who loves us deeply. Worth mentioning the next book that we're going to study as a church, we're going to start in a few weeks, is the book of Acts. To bring this story full circle in Luke, where Jesus is weeping over the hard-heartedness of a city, and then Jesus is praying for the forgiveness of the people who are killing him, what Jesus is ultimately praying is, God, please don't hold them responsible right now. They don't know what they're doing. Be patient with them. Extend grace and mercy to them. Rather than arrive at final judgment right now, please hold off and give them time. And when we get to Acts chapters 4 and 5, we see Peter and the apostles for the very first time preach the gospel message in Jerusalem. The first time the gospel message is ever preached, 3,000 of the people who were in the city on that day accept Jesus as their Savior. We're told in those first few weeks, thousands of people that Jesus ultimately prayed for 
saying, please don't hold them responsible. Give them a chance. Those people turn to Jesus. Those people recognize who he is. They recognize their hard-heartedness, and they turn. I'm going to get to two things real quick, but just to ask this here, just maybe to apply this to our lives a little bit. Are we willing to extend the same kind of patience and mercy to people that Jesus did? Are we able and willing to look at people's hard hearts, to recognize the ways that we've been hurt and wounded, and acknowledge those things, not excuse them, acknowledge them, and still say, forgive them. So, let's just take a moment and breathe. Church, how good is our Savior? How great is his love for us? So how do these stories help us live as disciples today? As women and men trying to follow Jesus? One, I think these stories are an invitation for us to reimagine the way we think about God's heart and character pushes out of our imagination this idea that God is primarily vindictive, gleeful in judgment. He's not eagerly anticipating the eternal punishment of sinners. Jesus shows us that it's almost a reality he's reluctant to arrive at. God wants his kids to come home. He is grieved by sin and God and Jesus is moved to tears by our hard hearts. I think when we realize that God isn't chasing us down to punish us, but instead chasing after us so we can repent, so that we can learn to confess our sin rather than conceal our sin. If you have children or have been around children, or if you're a child who has parents, you're probably familiar with this experience. I see it with my own kids. They are much more likely to tell me what's going on in their life if they know they'll be met with grace than if they know they'll be met with anger and judgment. If they think all I want to do is punish them for their mistakes and chastise them for the wrong decisions, they will conceal their sin. But if they know that they will be met with grace, if they know that they will be encouraged and taught, they'll share openly. God pursues us, inviting us to repent so that we can find the kind of peace that our hearts desire, the kind of peace that leads to security, wholeness, welfare, and flourishing. Our hearts and our minds are shaped by what we believe about God. We live our lives in light of the ways we think about God. And these two stories present a picture of God that's 
marked by love, not anger. And two, I think these stories serve as an invitation for us to weep for those who are far from Jesus, to not judge the people that we think are living their lives in ways we don't want them to. We need to be people whose hearts are so moved by our neighbors' hard hearts, our coworkers' hard hearts, our family members' hard hearts, that we, like Jesus, lament on their behalf. And then, like Jesus, we need to move towards those who are far from God and offer through our lives a pathway back to God. We need to be able to ask God to forgive the people who hurt and wrong us. When we're thrown under the bus by a coworker, we can pray for them. When our kids lie to us, we can pray for them. When our partner says a hurtful word, we can pray for them. I am not suggesting we allow ourselves to be mistreated in the name of Jesus. I'm not suggesting that we allow ourselves to be hurt or harmed by other people without consequence. The people who Jesus prayed for, the ones who killed him, they still needed to recognize what they were doing. They still needed to repent. When we're consistently hurt, harmed, or mistreated by someone, we can pray for them at a distance. But as we see when we begin to walk through the book of Acts, many of the people who lived in Jerusalem, the people who were responsible for Jesus' death, those people later heard the gospel and responded to it. And I believe there are people in our own lives that if we are slow to anger, if we are rich in mercy, if we are patient and prayerful, we will see them turn to Jesus too. So, we can reimagine the way we think about God's heart and character, and we can pray and weep for those who are far from Jesus. Because in these two stories in Luke, we discover a God who loves us. And we know that we are not haunted by an angry God, but pursued by a God who desperately loves us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time together, this opportunity to talk through these passages. Would you plant this truth in our hearts? Would you reorient our imagination? Father, we love you and pray in your son's name. Amen.